But I'm afraid the end time is near. The cataclysmic apocalypse referred to in the scriptures of every holy book known to mankind. It will be an era fraught with boundless greed and corruption, where global monetary systems disintegrate, leaving brother to kill brother for a grain of overcooked rice. The nations of the civilized world will collapse under the oppressive weight of parasitic political conspiracies which remove all hope and optimism from their once faithful citizens. Around the globe, generations of polluters will be punished for their sins, unshielded by the ozone layer they have successfully depleted, left to bake in the searing naked rays of light. Wholesale assassinations serve to destabilize every remaining government, leaving the starving and wicked to fend for themselves. Bloodthirsty renegade cyborgs created by tax-dodging corporations wreak havoc. Pissed-off androids tired of being slaves to a godless and gutless system where the rich get richer and the poor get fucked over and out. Unleash total worldwide destruction by means of nuclear Holocaust, annihilating the terrified masses, leaving in its torturous wake nothing but vicious, cannibalistic, mutated, radiated, and horribly disfigured hordes of satanic killers bent on revenge, but against whom there are so few left alive. Starvation reigns supreme, forcing unlucky survivors to eat anything and anyone in their path. Massive earthquakes crack the planet's crust like a hollow eggshell, causing unending volcanic eruptions. The creatures of the seven seas, unable to escape to certain death upon land, boil in their liquid prison. Disease encircles the earth, plagues and viruses with no known cause or cure, laying waste to whatever draws breath, and humankind having proven itself to be nothing more than a race of ruthless scavengers, fall victim to merciless attack at the hands of interplanetary alien tribes who seek to conquer our charred remains. This is Extinction Level Event, the final world front, and there is only one year left. to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and this is the second part of my Extinction Level Event mini-series, where I talk incessantly about comic book crossovers that need to be talked about incessantly. I think it'd be fair to say that my entire podcast is really supposed to be uh, a celebration of comics. But I gotta tell you, people, I've never really been a big crossover guy. Generally, these these crossovers and these big event storylines always been just a little bit of a turnoff for me. But today's story is not a turnoff. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Before we get really too much into today's story. I should probably think about introducing this week's guest, because, hey, that seems like a good idea. Today's story demands a certain amount of perspective. And loyal subjects, when it comes to Marvel Comics, 
One thing I just don't have very much of is perspective. So it only seemed fair, fitting, and right to find a guest who can say everything that I can't. So, because this episode needed, above all else, to be informed, I decided to bring in one specific guest. Now, I've got many loyal subjects. Some are quite devoted, in fact. But I've also got really just a handful of vassals. Podcasting vassals. And today's guest is most certainly one of my podcasting vassals. He's an award-winning radio talk show host. He's a co-host of the Dinner for Geeks podcast, which you can find right here on the Two True Freaks Network. And he's a man that is purported to have incredible powers of contortion and flexibility, at least according to the court documents. And so it is with special pleasure, so to speak, that I welcome back to the show for the first time in a very long time, Mr. Scott W. Rifen. How are you, sir? Scott W. Rifen. Wow, I inherited a middle initial. Yeah, there you go. Hey, that's I, awesome. Well, you know, you're moving up in the world. So yeah. once you reach a certain point of uh, your specialness, yeah, you do get the middle initial after a while. And I, I got to tell you, Magnus, I, I appreciate you bringing me back out of the wastelands where you banished me to after the last time I was here. And uh, I, I, I'm still thawing out a little bit from all of that. But uh, I want to pull the curtain back a little bit for people who don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, Magnus has his program so far planned out in advance. We're actually recording this nine years before House of M actually comes out. Yes, we are. And he, he and I have not even met each other yet, but we know that this is going to happen. Or he knows it's going to happen. He's planned it out. So we're going ahead and, and having the discussion today. So I, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm blown away by this whole thing. Well, what I was taught as a kid is that everything that you do in life, do it with purpose, do it with a plan, do it with pride. Here we are. So, <laughs> but uh, yeah, as, as a, uh, as Scott has said, what we're going to be talking about today, today's uh, crossover mega series event, is Marvel's House of M. And the reason that I wanted Scott to be part of this is specifically because of the fact that, as I kind of alluded to earlier, he's a lot more in tune with the Marvel universe than I am. I mean, it's just it's a simple fact of life. I'm a DC guy. Go ahead. It's okay. You can call me a, a zombie. That's fine. No, I was going to call you a Marvel guy. I've always thought Marvel that guy. whole Marvel zombie thing, I always thought that, at least when I was a kid, what I always interpreted, that's a little bit of a pejorative. You don't, you know? Oh, remember? yeah. No, it's not a little bit of a pejorative. It's it's a lot of a pejorative. Right. It's just rude. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the thing was, speaking of rude, about two hours ago, I was actually recording with uh, Professor Allen for an episode of uh, Quarter Ben, right? Okay. Speaking of rude, Professor Allen? Yeah. No, believe me, this is going somewhere. <laughs> and what happened was I was listening back to some ancient show. I mean, this is one of his first appearances on my show. Mm -hmm. And when I looked – look, when, I, when he and I were recording, I just was saying stuff to him, and it was meant to be all in good fun. When I actually listened to it, though, I mean, I thought – I. If he wanted to believe that I that I was a complete dick to that uh, uh, to him when he was nice enough to come onto my show, based on the way I was talking to him, he had a very good argument, you know. So ever <laughs> since then, I've gone way out of my way to be ultra nice to Professor Allen, let him know, hey, 
you know, anyway, and it, come to find out, you know, that's not the way he he took it at all. But the last thing I'd want to do is invite you on my show and then, you know, make you feel like you're being insulted. So, yeah, OK. <laughs> anyway, so I try to be a lot more careful about that sort of thing now. So, no, you're you're a uh, in my uh, the way I look at it, you're a Marvel fan. You are not a Marvel zombie. So uh -huh. anyway. But what we're going to be talking about is uh, House of M. And as I say, the reason I wanted Scott in on this is because of the fact that he's a Marvel he's a Marvel fan. <laughs> and the, that's and that's part of it. The other part of it though is that I thought that there was a good uh, possibility, there's potential here that he and I are going to maybe have a different point of view about this story. This isn't to ambush him or bait him or anything mm. like that. It's just that I think he and I may not have the same outlook on all, on all of this, and so it you know it'll be nice. We'll agree to disagree agreeably, but um, I'm not sure if you and I are necessarily going to come down on the on the same side here. But the oh, big now pitch. I'm, I'm sorry. Do what? Oh, now I'm intrigued. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Yeah, well, I'm going to listen to this episode. Oh, okay. Well, see, I went into this assuming that you and I were not on the same page based on just some comments you made. I was thinking, okay, <laughs> wow, this could be interesting. So, anyway, the big pitch of. Uh, of uh, House of M, at least as far as you know, plot synopses and whatnot uh, go, they are all as follows. <sighs> Wanda Maximoff, also known as the Scarlet Witch, is living on the, the devastated island of Genosha, under the care of Professor Charles Xavier and her father Magneto. Professor X informs Magneto that his telepathic powers will no longer be enough to hold back Wanda's reality-warping abilities and that a permanent solution, one might say a final solution, must be found. Magneto blames himself for twisting his children through the strength of his own dreams and ambitions, which seems like a logical assessment to me. Meanwhile, Xavier arranges a meeting of the Avengers the X-Men, and several lone heroes to Avengers Tower to decide the fate of Wanda Maximoff. Emma Frost concludes that killing Wanda is the only way to end her destructive magic. Captain America argues that the group should seek alternate methods of dealing with Wanda, including suppression of her powers and her insanity. The X-Men argue that if word gets out that a mutant with the ability to change reality went insane... It would send human-mutant relations back to the Stone Age. As the conversation progresses, it's revealed that Professor X asked Doctor Strange to help Wanda, but unfortunately, neither of them was strong enough to combat her magic. Wolverine speaks up, saying that there is no other way. Wanda must be killed. The rest of the group decides that they must talk to Wanda in person before making their decision. Back in Genosha, a distraught Quicksilver rushes to Magneto and reveals that he was just in New York where he heard that the X-Men and Avengers are planning on killing Wanda. Magneto doesn't really know what to do, and clearly upset, he asks, What would you have me do? Quicksilver falls to the floor sobbing, and uh, Magneto glances over at his sleeping daughter. Which, absent context, that's a little bit creepy. Xavier takes the two groups to Genosha, only to discover that Wanda is missing. Suddenly, the members of the group start to disappear one by one. Spider-Man is soon the only one left and becomes engulfed by a giant white light. When the light departs, we see that the world's changed. Spider-Man's a celebrity married to Gwen Stacy. 
Cyclops and Emma Frost are married. Doctor Strange is a psychologist. Carol Danvers is Captain Marvel, America's most beloved superhero. Gambit's a criminal. Steve Rogers is an aged veteran. As we follow vignettes of their lives, it becomes readily apparent that none of them remember the change. Wolverine recalls all of his lost memories and knows the, this new world to be a lie. He finds the world's changed into one where Homo superior are the dominant species instead of Homo sapiens. Mutants rule humans, and Magneto and his House of M rules mutants. Wolverine seeks help from his fellow X-Men and Avengers. Unable to find Professor X, Wolverine goes looking for Spider-Man and Tony Stark. He's confronted by his quote-unquote teammates in the Red Guard, which is to say, the elite mutant soldiers of S.H.I.E.L.D. Wolverine escapes and finds the human resistance movement led by Luke Cage. Cage has gathered other non-mutant crime fighters to protect humans from the House of M's abuses of power. Wolverine's shocked, shocked I tell you, to see one of the members is none other than Clint Barton, a hero who died in the real world. Wolverine explains why, why it is that he knows this world was created by the Scarlet Witch. He theorizes Magneto used her to create a world where everyone's deepest wish was granted. Magneto got the mutant supremacy he always wanted. Spider-Man got a life of happiness and contentment. Wolverine's an agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., but remembers the world from before House of M. Cage reveals that a girl named Layla Miller, oddly enough, has told him almost exactly the same thing just a couple of days earlier. The heroes begin visiting the Avengers and X-Men in their new lives as Layla awakens their true memories. Wolverine and the Human Resistance awaken many heroes to the truth, including Cyclops, Spider-Man, Shadowcat, Doctor Strange, Iron Man, B. Arthur, She-Hulk, Daredevil, Mystique, Nightcrawler, Toad, and Spider-Woman. Hawkeye becomes distraught over, over learning of his own death and briefly leaves the group. The rest of them travel to Genosha for a final confrontation with Magneto, because we're running out of pages now. Back in Genosha, Magneto receives representatives from all around the world to commemorate the mutant triumph over humanity. The heroes attack Magneto and his family directly while Cloak, Emma Frost, Doctor Strange, and Layla search for Xavier. All they find, though, is a gravestone with Xavier's name, but Cloak discovers there's no body buried underneath it. The battle between the House of M and the heroes continues with great ferocity. While the chaos ensues, the Scarlet Witch disappears from the battlefield, only to be discovered by Doctor Strange in a tower with her children. The two begin to talk as Doctor Strange attempts to discover the origin of the madness that's happening. Wanda reveals the answer to him in a flashback from when Quicksilver confronted Magneto about the fate of Wanda. Turns out that Quicksilver himself was the one who was responsible for the creation of the alternate world, suggesting to Wanda to make everyone happy in an almost perfect world. After this revelation, Emma Frost tells Doctor Strange to ask about the fate of Charles Xavier. Before she can answer, Wanda's struck in the back by an arrow. The attacker is Hawkeye, who begins to break down emotionally to Wanda about his death in the real timeline. 
After a very heated exchange, Hawkeye is killed for the second time, which gotta suck, as one of Scarlet Witch's antagonized sons uses his mutant powers to erase the Avenger. Meanwhile, in the Memorial Garden, Magneto confronts Emma Frost and Layla Miller, who reveal the truth to Magneto about all that's happened. He then unleashes his wrath on everyone, especially his son Quicksilver. He nearly kills Quicksilver by pummeling him to a bloody pulp with large pieces of steel. Which, in terms of ways to die, yuck. Suddenly, the Scarlet Witch appears, stopping Magneto and returning her brother to, to his healthy form. She begins to lash out, saying, We're freaks, mutants. You chose this over us, and you ruined us, Daddy. She then utters, No more mutants. Everything turns to white once again, which, again, absent context, is a little offensive. In a blinding flash, the world seemingly returns to normal. The Avengers come together to try to make sense of just what the fuck's happened that night, only to be confronted by a distraught Doctor Strange who states that the House of M really did take place and its effects are slowly being felt on a much wider scale. They later get an alert from the ruins of Avenger Mansion. Investigating, they find Hawkeye's uniform pinned to a wall along with his arrows, suggesting that yes, Hawkeye is in fact alive. At the Xavier Institute for Higher Learning, most of the students lose their mutant abilities. Emma Frost scans the whole world with Cerebro for mutant activity. She learns the number of mutants in the world has dropped from millions to just a couple hundred. Meanwhile, Wolverine awakens remembering everything about his past. The X-Men fly to Genosha looking for Magneto as well as his children. They find Magneto is also powerless and doesn't know where Wanda or Quicksilver have gone. The heroes can only guess about what exactly has caused the majority of the mutant population to lose their powers. Which, based on what Wanda said just a couple of pages earlier, really shouldn't be all that big a mystery. Xavier is still missing though, and Cerebro and Doctor Strange are both unable to detect Scarlet Witch. Hank Pym warns that all these powers couldn't simply vanish. They're just contained somewhere else, and that every action has an equal and opposite reaction. The question remains, as Pym says, what will be the reaction? As if to punctuate this statement, a colossal red ribbon of energy begins to orbit Earth. The end. Hmm. So, what did I think? Irrelevant for the time being. First, I want to give, I, I want to give Scott the floor since he's had to sit here listening to me prattle on, and uh, go through this whole big summary. So, Scott, what mm -hmm. exactly did you think? Oh, are you done? I'm uh, done. Let me wake up here. No, <laughs> no, no. I um, <sighs> I felt like this was House of M, and I have felt like this for ten years now. Mm -hmm. And thanks to you this week, I pulled this back out and read it again. And I still feel like this was a big event that was there for mostly the purpose of having a big event. And there is, there's one vital and necessary thing that happened towards the end that I, that I applaud, but it's interesting because they give, they give Brian Bendis these stories and they go here, Brian Bendis, go write our big, epic, massive crossover you know, uh, our apocalyptic crossover. And Bendis doesn't do that. He does small and intimate. Mm -hmm. 
So you get this story that is supposed to be the big apocalyptic massive crossover story, and it's small and intimate for about 90% of it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, when I want to see Secret Wars, I want to see Secret Wars. When I want to see heroes busting up on each other and heroes busting up on villains, I want to see heroes busting up on villains. We don't get a lot of that in this. No. Um, and, and, and again, I, I lay it at the foot of, I, I don't know that I should lay it at the foot of Bendis's storytelling or whoever, whichever editor said, let's have him be the guy to write this event. Uh, cause it's just not, it's not the type of thing he writes. It's not the type of thing he does. And it shows here. What I will say is by the end of it, thank God they thinned the number of mutants out there. One of the things that stops me from buying a book is getting too confused because there are too damn many characters out there. Uh, I stopped buying G.I. Joe. G.I. Joe was one of my favorite runs in the 80s. I'm not going to lie about it. Mm -hmm. Great comic. Loved it. Great comic. Larry Hama. But eventually it got to a point where I would pick it up every month and I go, wait, who's that guy? And what, what about this guy? Who's this? And who's... And the same thing had happened to me to X-Men with X-Men by the late 90s, early 2000s. I couldn't pick up an issue of X-Men and know who was what and who was where and who, you know, who anybody was. So I wound up giving up on the X-Men. Right. And, and again, mostly it was just because there was a flood of way too many characters. So the fact that by the end of this, and that to me is the one real goal of this thing, is that by the end of it, we have fewer mutants to have to deal with. And I think that's probably better for everybody. Uh, well, I mean, I, look, I, this is actually somewhat where my uh, ignorance about really most things Marvel sort of uh, kicks in. I've read, I think, a de and I know this is going to tick you off, but I, I, I do have to mention, I've read a decent amount of Ultimate X-Men, but like real X-Men, I don't really have tons of experience with. Now, mm -hmm. my understanding was that, or at least my assumption would have been that uh, there were... Let me think. There were probably what? What were there? Like eight or nine ongoing mutant-related titles in the Marvel universe, like towards the uh, beginning and then the middle of the 1990s. I mean, that's a shitload of characters, dude. Um, I'd, yeah, I'd put it. Yeah, beginning and middle of the 90s, because yeah, they they had the the X Men and then they had Uncanny X Men. They had the New Mutants, and eventually you got X uh, Factor, and yeah, it's just it's too much. And it. I didn't really read a whole lot of X uh, X Men or really any mutant related books in the '90s, specifically because of whether it was fair or not. The uh, perception that I always had was uh, really about Marvel in general, but especially about the X Men, was that if you didn't have a working knowledge of the last 10 or 15 years worth of you know stories and continuity and characters and powers and conflicts and all these other you know just sort of minutia you weren't really going to be able to get into what was going on right now as much. And then as now, my attitude has always been that every story that you write needs to be accessible to new readers. Mm -hmm. And that was, honestly, that was really no way to run a railroad back in you know the early 90s when you think about it. I mean, they were selling millions of, of uh, copies per month. They didn't yeah. need to worry about accommodating new readers. I mean, fuck new readers. I mean, they've got plenty uh, to work with already. Yeah, you're and, selling more than you've ever sold before. What do you need to worry about the new readers for? Exactly that. Yeah. And so because of that, and, and again, I'm not even sure if that if that's even a a valid criticism. I'm just saying that's the way that I saw it. Let let me say this. I don't think it's a valid criticism for the Marvel universe as a whole, particularly at that point in time. Mm -hmm. uh, but for the X Men, I do think it is a, a valid criticism because the stories got. I don't want to, you know, be scandalous here, but the stories did seem 
to get rather incestuous as they went on. Mm-hmm. And one of the things, one of the ways in which the books suffered, aside from becoming too dense with too many different characters, was they became very dialogue heavy because there had to be so much exposition to get some of these newer readers up to stuff on this stuff. And, and it really, uh, sometimes it was, you were swimming under word balloons trying to find the art. Hmm. Uh, Chris Claremont was particularly heinous. Yeah, yeah, that. yeah. He was famous for that. Yeah, yeah. And it was just, and it just. But if you read his stuff when he was with Byrne, it wasn't that bad. I mean, it was enough dialogue to tell the story. But by the time he got into the mid '90s, and they're just rolling and rolling and rolling with all these stories and subplots and interconnected this and that, and you know, everybody's died at least two or three times and come back from the dead. Uh, you, you tend to feel like you are just. You know, it, th- it's funny because in this day and age, I get frustrated because it takes about five minutes to read an issue of yeah. anything. Yeah. Uh, but back then, there was there's a healthy medium, and they were on the other side of it by the mid '90s with the X books. Right. Yeah, and it, it is it is interesting to me that we we've gone now from those two just really drastic extremes. The irony of that has never been lost on me. But the thing is about those um those uh, stories all through the '90s. What I'll say for them, and again, I've never read them. But speaking as an outsider who's only heard like the basic premise, those sound like some amazing stories. It, like if you're, it, you know, if you're up to date on all of your X Men lore and everything, then you know you've got all of these different uh, stories where you know maybe one in, in one story Wolverine's getting his adamantium uh, skeleton ripped out, and then in, in another storyline, there's uh, like this split personality that we never even knew Magneto had that fu- just fucking warps reality and rewrites history. And uh, just all of these just amazingly kind of neat ideas that, you know, I, I kind of feel like if they just tweaked that a bit more and made it a little bit more entry level, mm-hmm. I kind of view X-Men as being the sort the passing fad of the 1990s. I think they'd be dominant like to this day. And um, it's just strange to think that so much could have gotten lost. But anyway, point is, you know, to say there are fewer mutants by the end of this story, honestly, that uh, really didn't come off as uh, basically as a negative story development for me because because of the fact that there were so many mutants, uh, you know, in continuity up to that point, I thought any kind of slimming down that you can do, no, is only going to be a good thing. No, you're absolutely right. No, see, we're not going to disagree on that. That's that to me. It, uh, one of the one of my problems, one of the flaws I find in House of M is it seems like the entire point of the eight issues was to get it so that we slimmed down the mutant population and could deal with it a little easier. I'm thankful they did it, but it does seem like at times that was the only reason they did this because it really is the only ongoing consequence of the whole thing. Well, then uh, this is not to challenge you, but it's just to kind of pick your brain a little bit. Mm-hmm. What, in your opinion, then, or who, in your opinion, would have been a better a a, a better choice for this? Perhaps, um, I don't, Mark Miller. You know, I, <laughs> I I got I've got a lot of beefs with Mark Miller and his writing, but I have to be honest, he does the big spectacle well. Um, and that's actually, you know, I was thinking about that when I was thinking about the fact that that I didn't think this was Bendis's type of material, but it probably is Mark Miller's type of material. Uh, he does do the big spectacle, and he does do it well. I wouldn't trust it to Claremont because he'd talk you to death. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, and Bendis doesn't necessarily. He, Bendis gets a lot of bad rap for over talking, and I don't know that he over talks. I think he over cutesy talks. Mm-hmm. 
but James Cameron does too, and he's the most successful director of all time. So what do I know? Uh, Ed Brubaker, you know, Ed Brubaker Ooh. got was on a was on a big run right then with the Captain America stuff, and he was really nailing down some good, solid, real world, you know, step by step storytelling. I don't know that he would have been a bad fit for this. Well, one of the things that um, I, I've got a pretty high opinion of uh, of uh, Bendis as a writer, and I realize that you know there's an entire world of people out there who probably don't really appreciate that. But you know, I, I agree with you know w- with your comments here. But I'm just saying that in general, I like the guy. But there were some storytelling. Mm. There, there, there were just some holes in the logic here that just don't add up. Shoot, I, like I, I could buy into the idea that you know on some basic subconscious level. Peter Parker always wanted to end up with with Gwen. I can I can buy that, and it's a no brainer to think that he would want Uncle Ben to still be alive. I can buy sure. that. He's always on and and again on some basic subconscious level, he's always wanted to be you know the superstar celebrity guy. I can buy that. What I cannot buy though is you know this 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 concept that uh, Wanda gave everybody their their secret heart's desire. I've never felt like uh, Hank Pym had that sort of an inferiority complex where he would appreciate being talked down to the way that he was, especially in that first issue where mm. uh, McCoy is basically, uh, you know, saying, Hey, you suck. And I know that it's, it's not through any fault of yours that you suck, but you suck on this basic <laughs> genetic fucking level. Intellectually, mm-hmm. you're as good as anybody and better than most. But the thing is genetically you suck. And you know that you suck. You're watching your whole sucky world be taken away from you. And that's got to suck. But you sure. do still suck. Let's get lunch. You know? <laughs> and yeah, I, that, that wouldn't be the optimal world for Hank Pym. I'm going to back you up to Spider-Man really quickly. Oh, sure. Go ahead. If we're giving Spider-Man his ultimate, just the best of all possible worlds, note in the story he's got a child who he names Richie, mm-hmm. who is named after his father. Yes. Which means he is he is, as he has always been, a little preoccupied by whatever happened to his father and mother. Right. I would think that if we were giving him his ultimate wish and his ultimate goals and desires, his parents would still be around. Not just Uncle Ben, but Richard and Mary Parker would still be around. Just talking plot holes here. Right, yeah, no, and and that I agree with, and I guess my sort of no-prize answer for that was going to be that uh, readers are far more familiar with Uncle Ben. Mm -hmm. And I mean this in terms of big, iconic Spider-Man mythos. We are far more... Plus the rice. Rice? Yeah, he's got, you know, Uncle Ben's... uh, Oh! (laughs) Rice. Okay, I see see what you did there. Okay. (laughs) Okay, yeah. And, you know, whereas if you've got um, Richard and Mary Parker running around and you need a couple of panels saying, Oh, and by the way, these are his parents and they're back from the dead because they never died. And, you know, whereas uh, just to see him talking to uncle Ben, we know what that means, uh-huh. you know? And so I just thought that was a little bit of convenient shorthand. I do agree with you. It's an obvious plot hole, but I could overlook it on that, on that one level. But, um, one of the other things though, that kind of stood out to me is, um, Magneto's, view of himself is that he's just fundamentally superior to the rest of the human race. And so as a result, what we're, what we're kind of seeing is this sort of process of, I don't know if I'd go so far as to call it like gentrification or anything, but there is, there is a sort of, 
acknowledgement all through the story that this is the mutant's world and that Homo sapiens really are on their way out. Now, to kind of put this in, I guess, like a vocabulary of uh, nature, and, uh, there, there are animal species out there that, for whatever reason, are simply unable to adapt to the rigors and the demands of the modern world. And so as a result, those species start dying out. Now, as, as people, what we tend to want to do is want to preserve uh, those those uh, those animal species, even though I think there's a very strong argument that nature has selected them to be removed. That yep. for whatever uh. reason, they're unable to survive. And it does kind of put this this whole story into some kind of a, an in, a little bit more interesting context to me that we actually see here the fulfillment of that. And I just, on some level, I can't help but think that in like the month-to-month story of X-Men in the regular 616 universe, something like this, this is more or less what Magneto's been fighting for all along. And mm-hmm. I don't know, it's just, it's interesting to see how all this plays out is what I'm saying. I mean, I'm a big fan of sort of alternate realities where you take, I guess, like the established concept of, you know, your day-to-day status quo and then sort of flip it in this really interesting way. And House of M, I think, is one of the best examples of what you can do with an alternate reality. Anyway, I give I give you the floor back because I've kind of laid a lot out there. What do you think? No, no. Uh, I, <laughs> I thought you were still going. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, again, there are a lot of things, and I and – I, I'm going to assume that some of the things we were talking about earlier with uh, uh, where we were going to disagree on some things have to do with I have a problem with a large amount of the way Brian Michael Bendis tells stories. Mm-hmm. He seems to kind of go around the point instead of attacking the point. Uh, his Daredevil run is full of uh, them building up to moments and then having a big cliffhanger at that big moment where you know something huge is supposed to happen and then picking up the next issue several hours after that big moment happened. Yeah. Without actually ever showing us the big moments. Uh, and, and I think you've got a lot of that in House of M. Towards the end, you started to get, hey, wait a minute. There's a, there's a couple of big panel showdowns with a bunch of different heroes in there. And that's to me, that's what these things are. That's what I want to see in these things. I want to see heroes striking great poses in large numbers, taking on a common foe. Uh, I I didn't get a lot of that in this. I got a lot of people sitting around talking, explaining things to each other. And it was literally, okay, Logan figures things out. He's got to go explain it to Emma. And then Emma has to explain it to Scott. And then Scott has to explain it to and it just, you know, by the time. And so finally, you know, they create the, the uh, device of this little girl so she can kind of explain it to everybody quickly. Mm-hmm. But that's, to me, that's all she's good for. Uh, it, it, there's just a lot of, there are a lot of plot conveniences in this thing for the sake of moving it along towards the end game, which again, to me is the one real notable worthy thing about this book, which is thank goodness they reduced the number of mutants. I keep coming back to that. Well, I I agree, but you know, as to the story itself, I mean, you, you know, you've laid out, you know, some qualms and stuff, but I guess, you know, based on just some comments that you made, I always got the idea that you sort of disapproved of the story not so much the the end of the story obviously you know it seems like you enjoyed that but i mean basically i guess the the mechanical aspects of of the story i just got the idea yeah wrongly it seems that you didn't that you didn't enjoy it um what i don't enjoy about it and and i'll say i'll say as a whole as a big event i do i think it falls short 
because again, what I want to see is is these guys in big piles and big hordes fighting. You know, I want to see George Perez. Ah, okay. I want to see said. a big, full action battle scene with everybody involved and everybody. You know, you get House of M. The eighth issue is not even doesn't even move the story forward. The eighth issue is the eighth issue is an epilogue. Yeah, it's over by the time you get to the final issue. And to me, when you have a big miniseries and a big event like this, everything should be in the balance up until the very end. And the final issue is just. It's not like the movies where you want, you got like a, a an entire 30 minute act and you've got, you know, you got to resolve it. And then after that, everybody can just kind of start going their separate ways. And to me, you've got to make people want to buy every single issue. And by issue seven, you've done everything. And issue eight, just kind of everybody looking around and going, oh, wow, look, this, this happened. Huh. What, a, what an interesting thing. Hmm. So, yeah, I, I don't approve of a lot of it. It's not what I would put out there as an example of a great big epic crossover but see you got to remember for me a great big epic crossover is the original secret wars you know mm. that's what i think about i think about snatching a bunch of bad guys and snatching a bunch of good guys and pitting them up against each other and let's go is now, a, is now about out. time to mention i've never even read secret wars <laughs> <laughs> i mean i'm familiar with the basic concept just never read yeah. it well that i mean that's that's all for the purpose of this discussion that's really all you need to know is that uh, the basic premise, and that you probably need to stay very far away from Secret Wars 2, which I will not own up to. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Now, speaking as the outsider um, here in all of this, the the guy that just doesn't really know as much, I guess, about, um, about uh, the Marvel Universe, one of the things I'll say is that I never really got the X-Men as they, uh, you know, as part of the Marvel Mar as part of the Marvel Universe, mm. I didn't really understand them or really what their place was, you know, in that world. And I hate to say it, but there's this uh, that sort of Armageddon moment uh, in uh, the first uh, the first issue where the uh, that big group of X Men um, they go to Avengers Tower and you've got Beast, Emma Frost, Cyclops, Wolverine, looks like Kitty Pride, and then Colossus. And they're doing that um, again. It's that sort of Armageddon moment in the uh, on the roof of the building. And what I realized is that it's you've got the Avengers, and they're sort of you know the celebrities, the the sort of beloved uh, People Weekly superheroes that mm. everyone uh, loves and and adores. And then there's the X Men, and they're like the Marvel Universe's dirty little secret. The they're the consummate outsiders. And yes. I never truly understood that, but you know they are the hated ones. They're they're other. They're the other in this world, yeah. and their sheer existence is something that most people just simply do not approve of. Where Captain Marvel is everything that the Marvel Universe wants to believe itself to be, these mutants are what they fear they are, and. I guess I never really understood, and it's weird that of all things, it was that panel that somehow convinced me. But there is this very clear—it's gotten a little bit blurry at lines uh, at, at times, but there's still this very clear delineation between the Avengers, the Mister Everybody's, the, the the Darlings, and then there's the X-Men, and they are again—they're just the unwanted, the outsiders of the uh, of of the universe, and. It actually does make it a whole lot easier now to, to kind of understand these. This is not just 
another set, like a, like a different superhero team, they've got, they're motivated by their own agendas and their own, a, a completely different set of values than say the Avengers. So anyway, yeah. never understood that until now. So Magnus, hmm. we're going to make a Marvel zombie of you yet. <laughs> it's uh no, that's exactly, it's a great read on the X-Men. I mean, it's, it, it has been interpreted by a lot of people as basically they are minorities in a bigoted world, whatever minority, you know, and it's been, and they've been used as an allegory for a number of different minority types, whether it's a racial minority or a sexual minority or whatever. Uh, but they, the, the, the way of portraying them has been for a very long time, they're minorities in a bigoted world. Here's how this bigoted world sees them. And what is interesting is where we have seen in our world, bigotry of many sizes, shapes, stripes recede as light is shown on them. Uh, this is one type of bigotry that for whatever reason, the Marvel universe has persisted. Well, to be fair, I mean, this, there, there is a status quo to, that the universe has got to maintain for itself. And so that sure. I get there. I mean, you pretty much have to start or rather you, you pretty much have to stop publishing X-Men comics the minute that the universe at large accepts them. Yeah. Um, and that, that I get, but one of the things that I guess I think might actually make for an interesting story is moments when they actually do start getting enfranchisement, you know, perhaps government employment or, or just, or, or whatever it is, or for that matter, go the other way with it, where now it truly is war. We're going to wipe every single one of you motherfuckers out or just, <laughs> or, or whatever it is. But you know, it yeah. just seems like there's this this teetering on the edge, but never quite falling over tension between them and shall we say the norms and the X-Men are basically there to make sure that it doesn't go. Things basically never get too bad for mutant kind. They're not necessarily there to save the world in a way. They're kind of there to save their own asses. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. And that's, you know, that again, that gets to the central conflict between professor X and Magneto which Magneto is anxious to go ahead and push Homo sapiens off to the side and assume superiority. And and Professor X is not, you know, we've got to, as this transition takes place, we've got to we've got to learn to live together. Well, and and it's funny because like that very bit of dialogue is rather didactically stated either at the beginning of the first X Men movie or the second one, I forget. And so they pretty much put the agenda out there, but sometimes it's sometimes in life you just have to kind of come to things on your own. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I can't help but feel kind of like a complete dumbass because it feels like everybody else in the room got it and I didn't. But, you know, again, my defense for this is, A, I assiduously avoided X-Men all through the 90s, specifically because of just how impossible this this, this stuff is to read. And mm -hmm. in general, I'm, I'm, re I'm really not a Marvel guy. So I, I feel a little bit justified here. <laughs> Well, I, again, I'd love to argue with you over it being really hard to read, but by the time you got to the, the mid-90s, you really it is really hard to read. And uh, there's not much I can do about that, and I do apologize. But I would suggest you go back and read the – the uh, I, if, if you want to go back and read some X-Men, there's some good stuff. I Start with the new X-Men and Dave Cockrum and Chris Claremont and then John Byrne and Chris Claremont. That's The Byrne-Claremont collaboration is really where it hit its peak – and the stories are complex enough and the characters are numerous enough that it's involving and it's engaging, but it doesn't, it doesn't get to the point where it's a turnoff because you go, well, who's he and who's, and that one's who, and that's what, and he did who, you know, hmm. 
So yeah, you know, go find some of that early. Heck, get a Marvel Unlimited subscription. I throw those things around like uh, that suggestion around like crazy all the time. And let me say, as a Marvel guy, if there were a DC Unlimited type subscription, I would be all over it as well. Oh no, nah, no, nah, no, no problem, no problem. Um, <laughs> you know what? I, as I was flipping through this, and I'm I'm sorry to kind of backtrack in the conversation no, here, it. but I can't help myself. I have ADD. Um, <laughs> we see that Carol Danvers, just again in the regular. 616 universe she's ms marvel right uh-huh in the house of m universe she is captain marvel and i guess my question is why i mean i i've read a little bit of the miss marvel series and it's friggin amazing i love it but she could have been i mean it, it, is is there's just something here that i'm missing because i mean honestly what's in a name if that's if that's yeah, well. it, if that's all she wants, just start calling herself Captain Marvel. What, I mean, what's the fucking problem? There's a legacy with that. Going back to the original Captain Marvel, mm-hmm. uh, he was a hero's hero. He was a man's, you know, he was he was a a classic great good guy. And to assume that mantle is significant. It's meaningful. It's uh, you don't just put that name on. Unfortunately, other characters have, uh, but I think for Carol Danvers, she doesn't just put that name on and that's what she would aspire to. She would aspire to be, you know, I I took her having that title as meaning she had in her heart, in her soul, in her mind achieved that level of goodness, decency, purity of the original Captain Marvel, the late Captain Marvel. I see. Okay. All right. Well, fair enough. The other thing uh, that – and this is, I guess, getting into like sort of like maybe some blood and guts of the story, literally. At the very beginning of uh, the first issue, what they're basically talking about, they're arguing the merits of murder. Mm-hmm. Now, if you'd prefer not to answer, this, that, that's fine. I understand. But like which side did you come down on? I mean should they have wiped Max, uh, Wanda Maximoff out or do you think they should have found another way? I mean who do you, whose side were you on there? I think I was on Cap's side. Because Cap says in that story, repeatedly in that scene, there's always a way. And I, I, I guess my outlook period is just a very optimistic one on life and on the world. And I always feel like there is, there's always a way. Uh, sometimes there's not. And but I, I, to me, I feel like you go and you exhaust everything before you. Uh, you, you go do something as drastic as they were talking about doing. I, I was surprised at how cavalier the conversation was, to tell you the truth. Well, I was too. And like the uh, sort of nail on the head moment was that it, it's just that one panel, but Spider-Man says, so like if any of my powers wig out on me, I can count on you to just kill me. <laughs> Basically is what we're talking about. Yeah. And, and Wolverine says, yeah, I hope, I hope so. And I hope you'll do that for me. And, it's just weird that the mutants in the room all knew what needed to be done here, and it was and and they're because they're they're looking at this only from, I guess a pragmatic standpoint. You know what is going to get us killed versus what won't. The other people in the room, just because of, I guess luck of birth, they don't have to worry about ramifications of their biology. They can just. They, I mean, basically what I'm saying is they can afford to be idealists. Who mm-hmm. cares? It's it, it's the mutants who have to take a broader view of things and saying, okay, what what's one versus 
All of us. They, they will come they for all of the, us. The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Pretty much. <laughs> and, you know, the hell of it is if... I, I get the idea that that's kind of the... That's kind of the that that's where Wanda herself is coming from. But if that's the way that she feels about it, I mean, here's somebody who can speak herself out of existence if she's determined to commit suicide. Sure. And Why yes. not? Yeah. And, and I, yes. and, yeah. And I get it. Hey, status quo, gotta have it. But <laughs> it's, uh, I don't know. Like I, I wouldn't even go so far as to call that a, call that a hole in the story logic. It's just, there are certain things here that, just don't think about it too much is what I'm saying. Yeah. Well, and I guess it's, I always attribute it to Danny Fingeroth. I don't know if it's actually his or not, but I, I used to read his, uh, Danny Fingeroth used to have a magazine called right now. Mm -hmm. And Danny Fingeroth, of course, a great Marvel writer and editor. And, uh, he, he the, the subject was always broached in their interviews with the writers that uh, a lot of comics writing is creating the art, the illusion of change without actually creating change. And how do you do that? And how do you achieve that? And uh, so, yeah, she's she's not going to go out of existence because if she does, she's going to come back later. Because it's again, comics are about the illusion of change without real change. Mm -hmm. I think it's one of the things, honestly, that upset a lot of people about New Fifty Two because it seemed to be real change. Now we're learning maybe not, or maybe it's real change that's turning into another real change. But <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, for the most part, look, I read four consecutive Marvel Essential volumes of Tomb of Dracula. And if you if you want a there is no finer example of comics being the illusion of change without actual change than reading the Tomb of Dracula straight through. He gets killed once a year. Every twelve issues, Dracula is dead, and they tell you every time this time it's for good, for real. You're never going to be able to undo it, and they always undo it. Wow. They always return exactly to the status quo over time. Oh, it sounds it sounds like Buffy. <laughs> Don't say that where my wife can hear you. Oh, she's a Buffy fan. Oh yeah. Ah, hardcore. Ah, okay. See now, this this I did not know. Important safety tip: uh, <laughs> ways to stay on J. Dean's good side. So. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things that I've never done, and actually I do need to make this into a little bit of a reading project. Every time I've ever gone through, uh, I've ever read House of Time. As if I've read it so – I've read it twice, one of which was for this episode. But <laughs> one of the things, though, I really do want to make a priority of doing at some point is uh, you know, hashing through the uh, crossovers because I'm just a huge, I don't know, admirer of the, the House of M con, uh, concept, the House of M world, and you know the, the types of stories that you can tell there that are literally impossible to do in the regular Marvel universe. True. You can do there. And so that I think is just really cool. But uh, now, have you had occasion though to read any of the uh, tie-ins and the crossovers and whatnot? Um, man, back in the day, that was look when when that came out, that was probably the peak. And all my life, and I'm born in 1970. I'd say right around House of M was about the peak of my comics addiction. And I was spending probably 250 to 300 dollars a month. And yeah, and remember that you know the God. the stuff. Yeah, think about what the cover price was back then. It wasn't four dollars or five dollars like it is now. Yeah, it was like two ninety nine or something. Yeah, two nine at best. Yeah, sometimes one ninety nine, and a lot of one ninety nine actually. And Good uh, Lord. Yeah, and so I mean, I was going to, and basically anything CBG said was remotely any good, I'd give a shot to. 
Uh, and I was buying in pretty equal measures. I mean, I was buying, uh, I was buying the flash cause Jeff John's run on the flash was fantastic at that point. And I was buying, uh, Oh, who was writing? Was it Paul Evans was writing Legion at that point? Who was writing Legion at that point? Legion or was it Mark Wade? Mark Wade. Yeah. Mark Wade had his Legion run that I thought was really good. Uh, Jeff Johns was also doing a JSA that was fantastic at that point. Um, so there was a lot of DC happening there as well, even though I'm more of a Marvel guy traditionally, but I was buying anything that seemed decent or remotely interesting. Pretty much. I was buying, hmm. uh, I would come out with a huge stack every Wednesday at the, at the shop. So, uh, when there was a house of M tie in, yeah, I was getting it. There was, it was not a, a question. It was a, not an issue. I was getting a house of M tie in period. Hmm. So yeah, I read, I read through a lot of that stuff and a lot of it's fun. You, you don't. You, you have to know the basic premise, obviously, to deal with it, but you don't have to read the side stories to have it make any contribution whatsoever to the overall House of M. Right, and I was actually going to kind of compare it to – and this is not to bait you, but it, I was actually going to uh, compare it to Civil War in that <laughs> you know, you've got the main series, but there are so many and – and I don't even mean this as an insult. There are so goddamn many tie-ins that you can read – you could make an entire month-long reading project out of that, and it's there's plenty to choose from. You don't. You bring up Civil War, and you don't want to bait me. Yeah, look, it's just <laughs> that's the best comparison. But I'm I'm seriously not trying to upset you. So uh -huh. I see, I see. Um, <laughs> now I kind of wish I cut my mouth short. Maybe yeah, mentioned. Yeah. Uh, that's uh, right. I don't Podcast know. Podcast is over. <laughs> <laughs> or you know, I guess maybe I could have mentioned Fear itself, but man, those tie-ins just sucked. <laughs> See, I was out by fear itself, though, uh, because Civil War drove me out of comics. Wow. It, what, yeah. I mean, I knew you didn't like it. It was that bad? It, there, there were a couple of things. And again, I, I you know mentioned Mark Miller <laughs> having written it. Uh, there, there were a couple of things. One, I could not, for the life of me, reconcile 40-something years of these heroes working together, working with each other, finding ways, finding solutions, all of a sudden just deciding this is it. Nothing else we can do. We've got to fight each other. Right. I couldn't reconcile that. And, you know, if we're going to get a little political here, I there were a lot of things that were being said by characters in the book that were echoes of political rhetoric of the day with which I was not sympathetic. How's that? Um, well, th that's the thing, you know, uh, we got, uh, into it at least a little bit, um, when, when I had Michael Bailey on the show for something else, uh, -huh. uh in an episode that's coming out after this one, but no one's heard yet. But, uh, anyway, he actually makes reference specifically to, let's just say it, the Patriot Act and, uh, -huh. uh basically, you know, the rights of it, the wrongs of it. And, you know, I kind of felt like. Look, I'm well aware of the fact that it's it, it's it's not a, I, look when it's this thinly veiled, you can't even call it an allegory anymore. Yeah. But um, you know, th but there is a, a a political point that uh, not even political. It's a partisan now. It's a partisan point. Yes. Uh, an argument that somebody is making, and I'm very well aware of it. I certainly have my views about it myself. Believe me. But it's for, – for some reason, like this I, – I regard Civil War – and again, this is not to bait you, but I do regard Civil <laughs> War as sort of my real entree into the Marvel Universe. Not just a character or two, but I mean the universe. 
Ugh. And, and well, no I'm, wonder you don't like it. Oh, <laughs> uh, well. <laughs> no wonder you got issues with the Marvel Universe. I would too. <laughs> well, and it's just, I just, God, I dug that story. I, I mean, uh, it was, uh, I, I just thought that at the time that it was coming out, you know, I felt like both of the, the comics companies, they, I, I don't know if I want to go so far as to say they were firing on all cylinders. But they were telling stories that played to their respective strengths, and by which I mean you had a Marvel story that had the word war in the title, and it was a bunch of heroes fighting each other. That's a very Marvel thing to do. On the DC side, there was this big, huge storyline that was going on that had Crisis in the title, and it was the heroes of the DC universe, and sometimes all through time including time travelers here, literally the, every single hero in the DC universe fighting a massive world-ending cosmic threat. Which is, let's face it, that, that that's a very consummate DC move. And so, you know, I, the way I look at it is people can love those stories or they can hate them, but it did feel like there is an honesty to it in that those are... they These were not... Maybe the characters weren't exactly written the way that they always had been. This is nevertheless a very honest story for those for those uh, publishing companies to tell, you know. So I don't disagree with that. Yeah. So and uh, and and Mark Miller, he gets into trouble with me a lot of times because he does write stories that he just that are straight off the cuff with nothing. He he gives no consideration to. Um, perhaps the perspective that he's representing in there. Mm -hmm. Uh, he'll, he'll, he got in trouble with me on the, you know, he got in trouble with me on the, on the, uh, what was the, the ultimates. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Well, when he, when he has the Hulk destroy New York city, cause she went on a date with Freddie Prince jr. Yeah. And I, I just, I could not, but, but in all, all sincerity, it was very honest. I mean, you know, if you're, if you're bringing that term to the to the game here, to the table, it was a very honest turn, but it just drove me crazy. And it drove me crazy also because the issue before that had been the one where Cap kind of made the rounds mm -hmm. and saw, you know, Bucky as he's going out and, and saw, I guess he, got, he saw, uh, uh, I guess it was Peggy Carter at the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, just heartfelt you know, almost make you just gush with tears. And then the next issue, he's got the Hulk destroying the city over Freddie Prince Jr. And, you know, killing countless hundreds of people over Freddie Prince Jr. Right. And it just didn't, it just didn't sit right with me. Gee, can't imagine why. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, but again, very honest. So, because it was very much a product of the day. It was a product of, of the celebrity that the Ultimates were generating at the time. And so it, it, it was very honest, but it just didn't – it annoyed me. And the same thing kind of happened with Civil War. It annoyed me as well. Mm. And, and uh, I told myself I was done with Marvel. I said, this is it. If this is what they're doing to the entire universe. I don't want anything to do with it. And then right as it was wrapping up, and I told myself I'd stick around till it was over and then I was done – the comic shop in my town closed and we never had another one. So I never had to worry about it again. Yeah. That's uh what a way to check out. Wow. That, <laughs> I mean, you've, you've mentioned that story a couple of times and I, my heart always breaks for you, dude. It just, that's, that sucks. Yeah. And we've never, they, 
I remember going to the shop on a Wednesday and they said, Oh, we're going to move this weekend. Next week we'll be at our new location. I said, okay, great. And then the next week they were nowhere yeah. and it never, they never reopened and we've never had another one open since then. So, um, but I'll be honest with you. I sit back and I've got my Marvel unlimited app and I can flip through anything and everything, just about 13, 14,000 different issues. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, it's, it's really a godsend. Anytime I just have a whim that I want to read something, I don't have to go track down a back issue. It's sitting right there at my fingertips. Right. Well, yeah. Okay. Fair enough. <sighs> well, and like I said, and like I said, if DC would do something like that, I'd pony up the dough in a heartbeat. I sometimes think that maybe there, no one's ever said so, you understand, but I sometimes wonder if there's a, uh, like some kind of legal thing happening with that. I don't know. Hmm. So, uh, again, it's not anything that anybody said, but I mean, how many times can you see Marvel come up with an, uh, just this amazingly lucrative idea and then you not do something similar yourself? But <laughs> then I start thinking, well, how long did it take for them to introduce Earth One? So, I don't know. <laughs> Well, the other truth of the matter is maybe it's not amazingly lucrative. Maybe it just kind of maybe it just kind of gets by, but it's good for the fan base. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. No. It may not be a huge moneymaker. Um now do you have any uh do you have any other uh thoughts about uh House of M anything that we haven't specifically mentioned yet? No, I, my big thing, I, you know, the art is interesting in it because again, when we get the one-on-one character scenes and just the, the talk, talk, talk scenes. I'm not in love with the art. I'm not in love with the faces. I'm not in love with the way they're drawn. But when uh, when they do battle scenes, when they finally do have their very few battle scenes in this thing, I really appreciate them. And I love the look he gives to the Scarlet Witch's creations falling apart because it's almost like, you know, they're Jenga. They're almost like little 3D puzzles, jigsaw puzzles. Right. And I, and I really like that look. So we really didn't comment much on the art, but I would have to say that when it comes time for action, I really enjoy the art in this book. Yeah, that's, yeah, I, I agree. It, it, that is, the art is hit and miss. I think really it's just the first issue where I don't like it. And it feels like every single page is a little bit better than what came before, such mm-hmm. that by the end of the uh, story, it's actually, I think, really enjoyable. So, mm-hmm. but uh, that's really the most about you know what I well actually I say that no there is actually one there was one other artistic flourish that I thought turned out extremely well and it's that moment at the end of uh, the first issue where Spider-Man and the other heroes are all wandering into uh, the Citadel I guess and out of nowhere Spider-Man is just all by himself he stops and it's like that we've it's it's kind of an anachronism now because of you know digital projection and movie theaters but back in my day <laughs> sometimes you go to a movie the film projector fucks up and you will get just this very brief moment where one frame is is stuck and it's being projected onto the screen and it melts yeah and then the heat of the bulb will just melt that thing and that's pretty much what we see the last two pages of um of the first issue and it's one of those things that I don't think that like future like your son I don't know if he's gonna really have the same vocabulary to understand that that you and I do it's gonna hit him in a different way than it hits you and me the first thing we think is film projector yeah what he may think is I truly don't know what he might think but 
Um, anyway, but I don't think he's going to say, ooh, film projector. You know, I, yeah. I just doubt that. So it's one of those things that uh, it's a really effective moment, but I just kind of have to wonder how well this moment's going to age for future generations. Yeah, it's an interesting point. It's an interesting point because, yeah, they're, they may not get it. I'm think I'm trying to think what my son will... I, I See, I'm trying to think what my son will think, but at the same time, I'm also thinking about the fact that I remember being... Uh, the second time I saw Star Wars ever in 19 September of 1977, mm-hmm. uh, this happened. Oh. So that's what I always think of. Wow. Yeah, and we it got shut down for probably 10 minutes while they fixed everything, and of course we jumped a huge section of the film. Uh, but that was my second Star Wars experience at the theater was exactly this: the frame getting stuck and then just melting and all the good all the good gremlin 2 stuff that happens right there yeah <laughs> <laughs> all right all right well then uh first up thank you once again for uh, joining us now why don't you tell everybody where it is that they can find you oh boy wouldn't you love to find me i am uh, <laughs> i'm on dinner for geeks if we ever put another episode out and by this by the time this episode comes out I assure you, episode 100 of Dinner for Geeks will be out. Uh, I've I've been immersing myself in a new project lately called My Star Wars Story. And the response to that has been tremendous. I've been really happy and really proud of the product as well. And uh, doing with the two True Freaks boys, uh, Scott and Chris, we're doing uh, Growing Up Star Wars, which is another really fun one. Scott and I are doing earning my ears which is a walt disney world podcast and is awesome by the way thank you thank you we we, it's i i kind of feel like our love for the place really shows when we get going so uh, it's and in fact we recorded an episode together at walt disney world this weekend with matt hunsworth of star wars and characters so awesome uh, yeah all over the place well one of the things about earning my ears that you said in i want to say it was like the first episode you said that storytelling is nigh inescapable uh, when you go to when you go to Walt Disney World which I it, it just kind of rolled off my shoulders I just didn't really think a whole lot about it but then there were every time you guys tell one of your stories it's not just that you're telling a story you're telling a story about tell, about a story yeah and then there was a um, you did a recording of something uh, from uh, Walt Disney World leading up to Christmas and there was some kind of French Christmas something oh, or other. Yes, yes, Père Noël. Yes, that's the one. And yes. and I was thinking, my God, this is what this was what he was talking about. It's like everywhere you go, people are telling stories. And and it just it's one of those things that you have to understand. I mean, like, you've been going there for all those years, and so you probably like you know this stuff you're very well uh, aware of all of that but i've never been to walt disney world a day in my life i don't know anything about it not really and so to hear that it's like okay i think i understand at least this part of it now but it's not it's not just that and i think you're right there but it's not just that it's the you know the architecture Mm -hmm. there's a story being told there there's a there's a great um when you go to Liberty Square in the Magic Kingdom, which is one of my favorite places because I'm a big fan of the Founding Fathers, and Liberty Square is all about that time period, the founding of our country. Mm-hmm. And when you go there, if you look around, you'll notice certain things like, oh, the shutters don't hang straight on any of the buildings. 
Now, there's a reason for that. And again, it's storytelling, which is back then they used leather straps to hold the shutters in place. And they, you know, they weren't nailed in or bolted in or, or on hinges. So they hung a little strangely. Now we have the technology. They don't, they're not actually hung by leather straps, but they look like they're hung by leather straps. Right. So there's a reason for it. There's also, <laughs> if you notice in the pavement, there's a, there's a, a kind of a stream of brown rocks running through the middle of Liberty Square. Right. Kind of an uneven looking stream of rocks. And it's, you know, you've got your regular pavement and then you've got this kind of brown stream running through the middle of the city. And the reason that is there is because in the day they used to take their chamber pots, for want of a better term, and dump them out the window and it would just kind of create a great big stream. Oh. So even in the pavement, there's storytelling. You know, this is the runoff from everybody basically flushing their toilet into the middle of the street. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, it's it's right there, and the uh, you know the architecture of the different homes and houses is progressive. It goes up through the years, and the addresses of the houses tell you essentially what year each house was designed. Again, there's just there's a whole there's a whole everything that's there is there for a reason in the story, and they don't ever let you forget it. Or if you you know if you ask around or look around, you can find out the exact reasons why various things are, in, are where they are and I'm talking about props accessories you know any anything you know a, a, a brick sitting on a windowsill why is that there there's a reason I guarantee you it's not just there at random nothing's there at random it's all there to serve a greater story and I love that about the place awesome and I love the show it's just it's uh, it's tons of fun to listen to so um, anyway you guys you got a lot to be proud of with that so uh, well, that's appreciated yeah, well, always a pleasure. And it's always a pleasure to have you. So thank you again for uh, for uh, joining in with me now. Absolutely. I, Are you banishing me again now? Yeah, pretty much. Got to do it. But uh, <laughs> something tells me you'll be back before too long. So, um, <laughs> But uh, now as to next week, uh, Extinction Level Event continues. I'm going to be joined by no less than Professor Allen himself Woo. so that we can talk about Armageddon 2001, the DC crossover from 1991. So... So I'm Ooh, look forward I read all to that too. I'm listening to this. Yeah, yeah, it's a uh, yeah, it's. I think you're actually going to enjoy it too, because we, basically, um, the way that I plan to do it at least, mm-hmm. is that I, I want to have, you know, one segment for the main, basically one segment for the main series, and then we can come back for a second segment to talk about a couple of, you know, I don't know about all of the tie-ins necessarily, but I was thinking maybe one or two, maybe three tie-ins, mm-hmm. because as with, uh, at least what I assume House of M is like. Those tie-ins are going to be amazing, much as the Armageddon 2001 tie-ins are also amazing. So um, that's the way I hope it works out, but uh, I guess we'll have to wait and see. But uh, anyway, that's next week. Yeah, so um, anyway, but as to uh, as to everything else, thank you. Bye, everybody, and I'll see you next week. We are out. Yay!
futuristic drawings saying what the future is going to be. I only hope that we never lose sight of one thing. Gleaming buildings, fast monorails. This is the future. It was all started by a monster. Twice the size of Manhattan. We want you to share with us our latest and greatest dream. Walt Disney World. Better than any other urban environment in America. Two True Freaks proudly presents... We hope that it will be unlike anything else on this earth. Golf courses, campgrounds, stores, hotels. Earning My Ears. A once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for everyone who participates. We're ready to go right now. Earning My Ears, a Walt Disney World-centric podcast, is available monthly at twotruefreaks.com. together from the disparate reaches of geekdom, here in this restaurant booth are the most powerful forces of geek ever assembled. Ryan, the toy geek. Scott, the award-winning radio host. Jeff, Scott's minion. And Ron, just Ron, dedicated to truth, justice, and geek for all mankind, it's Dinner for Geeks. Dinner for Geeks proudly crusades at twotruefreaks.com. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trentus Magnus, Punches Reality, is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trentus Magnus, Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus, Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I've put them up. You can friend me on Facebook by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-S-M-A-G-N-U-S-S. You can email me and my parole officer at TrentusMagnus at gmail.com, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S M-A-G-N-U-S Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday and that's a promise Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows That's right Simply click the PayPal link donate any amount at all tell us which show you're choosing and what message if any you'd like us to read on your behalf and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode with your message read in the show's opener it's that easy and there's no minimum donation be a show sponsor today if you shop at amazon.com please consider using the link at twotruefreaks.com to shop there 
If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsecor of Milan, Italy.